Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Good to welcome you who are watching on the live stream as well. Hope that you are having a good day wherever you are. And uh, we're going to just briefly pray before we apply ourselves to this passage of God's Word. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be now and always pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. I bet some of you have seen a baby spitting out its early solids. It's utterly infuriating. It's also quite sweet. They, they look so totally violated that you've been so unreasonable as to expect them to eat whatever muck it is that you're trying to get them to eat, like a, you know, a solid piece of cucumber or um, pepper or something. And either you get this kind of... Or the thing that, I, that really gets me is when they do this... It's like a sort of a dribble... The food is just going to dribble down their chin. Well, some Christians were a bit like that baby when it comes to the chewier bits of God's word. They don't have any patience when it comes to gospel ideas that don't seem instantly relevant and take a bit of mental effort or a bit of time to reflect on. I wonder if you're like that. If so, it will keep you immature in your faith. You'll never really be settled. At worst, as we saw last week with Adam when he preached, if we will not grow, actually it leaves us open to the possibility of dropping out of the Christian life altogether with the catastrophic consequences we considered last week. Well, look, here's a meaty phrase that someone might be tempted to splurge down their spiritual chins. Here it is. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind... You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Right, we've reached Hebrews chapter 7. And twice in chapter 5, the writer to the Hebrews quoted those words. They're from Psalm 110 verse 4. But, he wondered, would his readers have the spiritual patience to go deeply into this statement? Which would have seemed quite obscure. And so he breaks off his chain of thought and puts in chapter 6, Adam's text from last, last Sunday, and he urges them there that they need to grow up in their faith. And that said, he's ready to feed them the T-bone steak that makes up chapters 7 to 10 of Hebrews. We're looking just at chapter 7 today. Because if we give this stuff about Melchizedek and his priesthood, if we give it a good chew then we will discover that it is exactly the food that we need to strengthen our hearts. So here's the plan for this morning. First of all, we're going to meet Melchizedek. It's in verses 1 to 10. And then second, the bulk of the chapter, verses 11 to 24, we explore what it means that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then third, we'll discover in the final verses of the chapter, 25 to 28, that this priest perfectly meets our need. First then, let us meet Melchizedek. Well, Melchizedek, he blazes on and then off the stage of history in a few short verses in Genesis chapter 14. Abraham has just won a great victory. And as he comes away from the battle, the, this, this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, uh, meets with him and Abraham bows low to the ground and pays him a tenth of all his possessions. Now, what do we know about this Melchizedek? Genesis simply describes him as priest of God most high. 
Well, the writer of the Hebrews then translates the name Melchizedek. It means king of righteousness. Back in Genesis, actually, he's also referred to as the king of Salem. And that translates here, the writer of the Hebrews helps us, as king of peace. Now, another thing that's significant about back in Genesis with this Melchizedek is that the author of Genesis does not mention uh, anything to do with Melchizedek's origins, like where he came from, or his end, which leaves the impression that Melchizedek's priesthood just goes on and on, that he is an everlasting priest. So that explains verse 3 of Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 3, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning or end of, day, end of days or end of life, like the Son of God, Melchizedek remains a priest forever. Now, there have been lots of theories, as you might imagine, about exactly who this Melchizedek was. It seems to, I think, personally, the best option is that, the, it, it, that Melchizedek is actually an appearance of the Lord. It is actually an appearance of the Son of God in, in a temporary um, form, like sometimes he does in the Old Testament in various different ways. That's, personally, that's what I think. Other people think, uh, quite reasonably, that he may have been just an ordinary human priest who we don't know about, but Abraham evidently did. Let's not get stuck on the debate. As you can imagine, there are plenty more options have been served up on that one. The main point is that this priest, Melchizedek, is exceedingly great. So, for example, he's a royal priest. In Israel, uh, the, the, the priests couldn't be kings, and kings couldn't be priests. It was written very firmly into the laws of Israel. And yet Melchizedek is both. And, as we've already said, we have the impression that he is a priest forever because there's no record of his death or his, uh, of his birth or his death. And again, verse 4. Verse 4 actually picks up the theme of his greatness. Just think how great he was. Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave him a tenth of the plunder. And, and then Abraham receives the blessing from Melchizedek. So in other words, Abraham definitely saw Melchizedek as greater than himself. And considering how great Abraham was, that is really something. And, goes the writer to the Hebrews, not only is Melchizedek greater than Abraham, he's also greater than all the priests who were descended from Abraham. You see, there was a whole priestly tribe in the descendants of Abraham. They actually descended from Abraham's great-grandson, whose name was Levi, the priests in the order of Levi, the Levitical priests. Well, says the writer to the Hebrews, effectively, all those Levitical priests were there in the body of their ancestor Abraham as, as Abraham paid the tenth to Melchizedek. Therefore, Melchizedek, is far greater than the priests of Levi who were in the body of their ancestor Abraham when he paid the tenth to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is exceedingly great. Meet Melchizedek, king and priest forever, greater than the priests of Israel. Well, I hope we feel acquainted enough with him uh, to be going on with. Meet Melchizedek. Now, second, let's go on. What does it mean that Jesus has been appointed a priest in the order of Melchizedek? Well, the law of Moses appointed Levi's descendants 
to offer sacrifices for the people. That's what we've, I've just mentioned that. Um, it was the law of Moses that appointed these Levite priests to run the worship of the temple. Now, that is a very powerful basis for your appointment. God's own word in Moses' law. And yet, when King David wrote Psalm 110, several hundred years after the Levitical priests had began their ministry, and even as they were busily going about their work, he clearly implied that the Levitical priesthood was not going to go on forever. See, Psalm 110 that David wrote was a prophecy of the promised Messiah. And the Messiah, we're told, in that psalm would be enthroned as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. But any thoughtful reader would have asked, I thought the priests ministered according to the order of Levi. Now, I know this is impossible, but just imagine that hundred years before, I would imagine that I'm a prophet and that we're rewinding in history back to 966, so hundred years before 1066. And I come to you and say, I've had a vision. And in my vision, I see a future king of England. And that future king of England is from the Norman line. Well, you would have said, uh, excuse me, but the, that's impossible. The, um, our, our kings are Anglo-Saxons. They are in the line of Egbert. And they would have seen exactly what my dream meant. That my dream implied that there was going to be a new king. A new line of kings. And that the old line of kings was no longer going to reign. And it's the same when David says the Messiah will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's saying that the days of the priests in the order of Levi, along with their whole system, they're numbered. The law of Moses and the priesthood that it establishes, they're not perfect. And it, that phrase, it's one of my political phrases that I just hate when politicians roll it out. It was not fit for purpose. The Levitical priesthood was not fit for the purpose of God's eternal salvation. And so, Psalm 110 implies that one day it will, it will go because the priest that will rule forever is in the order of Melchizedek. And in the event, the promised priest, Jesus, he came from the royal tribe of Judah. Remember the reading said that, Penny read that a moment ago, he came from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi, not the priestly tribe, he came from the royal tribe of Judah. Now, here's a question, how can we be sure that it is Jesus who fulfills the prophecy of being an eternal priest? Think about it. What do you need to do to be an eternal priest? You have to beat death. You cannot be an eternal anything unless you can beat death. And so Jesus, because he has been raised from the dead, he's the only candidate to be the eternal priest, the priest who is priest forever. Hence, verse 16, verse 16, Jesus became a priest not on the basis of a regulation concerning his ancestry, that's how the priests of Levi's became priests. No, he became priest on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever. Jesus is the only candidate who can fulfill the promise of an everlasting priest. 
Now, we'll come back to this point about Jesus being the everlasting priest. But the writer wants to draw out another detail from the majestic Psalm 110, verse 4, which highlights just how much greater Jesus is than the other priests. You see, when God ordained those priests, those old priests and the, the, the Levitical priests, there was no oath. He didn't swear an oath to them when they became priests. But look at Jesus, verse 21. Jesus became a priest with an oath. When God said to him, and the Lord couldn't put this more strongly, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So the, the word of God, the word of the Father is is 100% certain without an oath. The oath is like double confirming for our sake that Jesus will remain a priest forever. And so, as a result, Jesus has established a new basis on which humanity can relate to God. Or, as it's put here, as it's called here, it's called he has established a new, a better covenant, a covenant being like a, a, a legally sealed and bound agreement by which God promises to engage and meet with humanity, a new covenant. And next week, the writer to the Hebrews gets into that, chapter 8, Charles is going to expand on it for us. And the, the, the thing is, this perfect arrangement, this new covenant, it cannot fail because the priest who administers it can never die. So it can never fail. Now that's what I call a guarantee. So the best guarantee that we can get um, in this life, think of it, you, you read it, you know, two year, five year, whatever, lifetime. If you buy Le Creuset saucepans, it's a lifetime guarantee, except our Le Creuset frying pan is dying. Anyway, that's not the, that's not the issue this morning. Jesus doesn't just offer us a lifetime guarantee. That's the point. His guarantee goes through death and stands forever. It will never expire. So let's just contrast now this one unique priest with the many priests who served in the order of Levi. Those priests died, and so they had to be replaced. Death constantly limited the good that they could do. But Jesus, having been raised from the dead, well, there is no limit on the good that he can do for his people. Now, just bear in mind for a moment that the people who first received this letter were tempted to uh, go back on following Jesus, back into the old uh, ways of their Jewish heritage, which included the Levites and the sacrifices and everything like that. And the reason they wanted to do that was because it would, it would avoid, it would help them to avoid trouble and persecution. But can't we see what a foolish trade-off that would have been? Yes, they would have gained a quiet life, but they would have lost a perfect, indestructible, permanent priest and a relationship and a living connection with God that's guaranteed forever, which would, of course, objectively have been utter madness. We've met Melchizedek. We've explored what it means that Jesus is a priest in his order. Now, third, let's discover why such a high priest perfectly meets 
our need. Verse 25, let's just anchor ourselves there for a moment. Therefore, Jesus is able to save completely all who come to God through him. Or as you may know it in the old King James Version, he is able to save to the uttermost. Or the, the Greek word, I mean, it, it, can be trans, it can be translated completely in the sense of, you know, entirely. It can also be translated forever, eternally. In other words, his salvation is everything that is needed for our need. It is a fully adequate salvation. He is able to save completely. This priest saves all who trust in him. What does he rescue them from? Well, from falling condemned into the hands of the living God. What does he save them for? He brings them into his father's family. He delivers us from everlasting exclusion from God into a full access into his heavenly presence now and always. Now, those kind of big picture, unseen realities may not seem our most urgent need. But they are, our, they, that is our most significant need. So, um, have you ever seen that, um, seen Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, it's called. You'll be, you'll be familiar with the idea, even if you've never seen the diagram. You know, you start at the bottom of the pyramid with your basic needs, you know, for sort of physical safety and food and all the rest of it. And the pyramid goes up all the way from those needs right to the top, which is like the need for, for, for being, you know, fulfilled and having meaning in life and all these sorts of things. We have so many needs, but right underneath that pyramid of our needs, there is an ultimate need, which is the need to be saved. The Bible says that we are all going to exist one way or another forever. Every single person on the planet, we will all exist one way or another forever. But without salvation... That eternity will be spent shut out from the love and the life of God. And whatever we may have gained in this world now, without salvation, it's just loss. We need a saviour. We desperately need a saviour. And Jesus, the priest in the order of Melchizedek, meets that need perfectly in two glorious ways. Let's see. First of all, he lives forever to intercede for us. Because one of the priest's tasks was to pray, to intercede for the people. So the high priest would enter into the room that symbolized God's presence, representing the people, taking their requests with him. Only the problem was with those Old Testament priests is that having entered in, they had to come out again until they went in the next time. And then they came out again. And then eventually they dropped dead and rotted in the ground. Constantly interrupted. It was stop-start. But Jesus' intercession is never interrupted. He entered God's very presence, not the symbol of God's presence, the Father's actual presence as our representative, speaking to the Father for us with full knowledge of our lives. He speaks to the Father for our good, and he never, ever stops. Just chew on that. Digest that for you now with all your concerns and issues and insecurities and guilts, fears. 
Think about it. Digest it. Talking of problems, I hate it when I, you know, have a problem with your broadband or your energy supply, or you've got to ring BT or something like that, and you're, you just, your heart sinks, doesn't it? You just think, I am gonna ha I'm about to have to wait for ages listening to awful music on hold, um, waiting for somebody who may or may not be able to sort out my problem, or even understand my problem, who may not even care, and even if they do understand and care, maybe may not have the clout in the organization to do anything about the problem. And your heart just sinks. You think, you just put it off. You think, oh, please, oh, no, I don't, oh, please, no, I don't want to do this. But when it comes to the most important matters of life and death and eternity, forgiveness and peace, guidance, meaning, purpose, destiny, Jesus offers an uninterrupted intercession. He is right now attending to these issues on behalf of all who trust in him in the very presence of his Father. He doesn't knock off and go for a break or sleep. It's constant in the very presence of our Father and through him and in prayer we have direct access anytime through him into the Father's very presence. Now, does the Father want to hear what the Son has to say on our behalf? Does he hear the Son with pleasure as he intercedes? Yes, he does. Of course he does. Here's our second reason Jesus saves so completely. He died as the sacrifice for our sin once and for all. Verses 26 to 27. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Jesus saves us by offering one perfect sacrifice for our sins. No repetition or improvement is needed upon what he once did. And the contrast is with those Old Testament priests, the old um, sacrifices of the Levite priests. See, the Old Testament priests, they were sinners, which meant they had to offer sacrifices for their own sin, whereas Jesus is sinless, meaning he can offer for the sins only of others. They offered animals. He offered his own perfectly obedient self. They were mere human beings. He was also the divine son. They had to offer, therefore, over and over again because their, their sacrifices actually did nothing to take God's judgment from our sin whereas his sacrifice was sufficient to satisfy God's judgment against those he represented forever. So unlike the priests of Old Testament Israel, he doesn't just provide a token of forgiveness, a picture of forgiveness. He gains us God's actual pardon, or in the old-fashioned word, remission of sin, forgiveness. So, of course, 
the father hears the son with the greatest pleasure as he lives to intercede. Of course, because the son died, offering once for all the perfect sacrifice for sin. <laughs> and it was the father who initiated it all in the first place. I long that we all grasp the implications of this to realize that we don't need to try to do what Jesus has already done. You might be believing and living what I think of as a two-letter religion. Do. D-O. Do. Do this good thing. Do that religious practice. Accomplish that status or whatever it, whatever it is that involves my action, doing, in order to satisfy God's standards. I, I certainly used to assume that's how it worked growing up in church. If I did the commandments, I thought, um, that, that if I do them as well as possible, I knew I didn't do them perfectly, but I thought God would be reasonable at the end of the day, I hope so. Um, I thought, well, I hope that'll be enough. But that's a distortion of the Christian message. It's even, I'd even go as far as to say it's a perversion of the Christian message. Because, the, and it's so harmful. The two-letter religion that says do um, leaves our hearts in a constant state of uncertainty, on a kind of treadmill of worry, uh, with an unanswered question hanging over us, which is, have I done enough? Is my doing good enough to, uh, for God to be pleased with me, to accept me, to hear my prayer, or to save me? No, the, the two-letter religion, do. That's not the Christian, that's not the gospel, that's not the Christian message. The Bible teaches a four-letter faith. Done. D-O-N-E. Jesus has done it for us. Once in the past, he made the perfect offering in our place. And now, he brings our deepest needs right into the Father's presence. It is settled. What a relief. He has stepped in paid the spiritual bills piling up unpaid to heaven so that we can live debt-free, at peace, in freedom, with confidence. Now I realize, of course, that that doesn't mean that all those other needs that are so pressing and real in our lives um, instantly get met. They don't. But the fundamental need is settled. I often think of it in terms of moving house. I've done a lot of that over the years. In fact, the, the, our last 10 years here, that's the longest I've ever been in one place. And so it moved so much. And so I know that for moving house, you, 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 the, the removal people drop all your stuff in the house, boxes everywhere, and you're thinking, oh, Christ, where, we, where do we even begin? And there's that sort of sense, you're swimming and thinking, oh, what are we going to do? Where do we... Um, all you need to do, really, is sort out your bed and, your, and the kettle. Those are the, that's the essential thing, settle those. And then, oh, the rest will take care of itself. But if those things are all right, you're, oh, you need to find the tea bags as well, of course. And if we have, if we know the priest who has settled all this once and for all and forever, it's like that. The bed's made, the kettle's there, and we've got the tea bags. It's okay. The basic thing sorted. Everything else will take care of itself. Or rather, he will take care of it.
Now, the moment the light turns on about all this, this once and for all, the fact that it's done, the, it, it's a relief. It's like breathing the free air for the first time. Is that happening to you today or realizing? I didn't realize that's what the, 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 the message was. And every time we come back to it, because our minds go fuzzy on it, every time we come back, it's the same. We sense the same joy again. We think, really? Yes, that's right. That's right. Silly me. Why am I pedaling so hard to do, 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 do? You've done it. And confidence rings through this chapter. And the confidence that rings through this chapter, it can find a resonance and chime in our own hearts as well. Some of those words, forever, permanent, guaranteed, indestructible, once and for all. Is it time for someone to turn decisively away from the two-letter religion? It's all about trying to establish a relationship with God by our own effort. We're seeing it more clearly now. We've come into the light, come into the joy of it, of the good news, and put your trust in Jesus who has done it once and for all. You see, I told her it was worth cheering on, didn't I? It was. Jesus is priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Yes, it did take a bit of thought, but we can see now that this priest in the order of Melchizedek is exactly what our flaky, fearful, tempted, weak, sinful, mortal lives desperately needed to hear. Let it bring strength to your heart. Let it in now. Let this, the Spirit wants to bring it. Let your heart be strengthened now. Let it give joy to your mind. Let it spur us to stay faithful to such a great salvation and never to let it go. You see, our complete salvation is secure forever by the once-for-all sacrifice and by the uninterrupted intercession of Jesus, the indestructible priest in the order of our friend, Melchizedek. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these glorious truths. Feed our hearts now on them. We pray for any for whom the light has just switched on about these things this morning. Fill them with joy and confirm in them by the power of the Holy Spirit the insight that they have seen this morning. And may they stay anchored to it all their lives. Lighten all our darkness, we pray, with the glorious truth of Jesus. We pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of this glorious priest. Amen.